Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. What seems to be the problem? Uh, well, so the thing is, Doctor, I am dead. Hmm. You're dead? Well, can you... Uh Explain. Uh, I'm I'm dead. My organs have stopped working. They've ceased to function. My heart, my intestines, my brain. But you're you're speaking to me right now. Well, I agree. I I don't know how to explain that. I guess I should be quiet. But I need to be put in a grave. I'm registering a heartbeat, a pulse. You're certainly breathing. No, I th- I think you're just getting the sound of air moving through the empty skin. Empty. I guess except for the bones. Everything else feels like it's gone, it's rotten, melted away. Well, if this were the case, you wouldn't be able to think or, or reason or or even travel to my office and tell me these things. Something isn't letting me die. Something? Not God, I mean. Uh, not Not God, but something. Anyway, Doctor, I need you to destroy my body, if that's possible. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And my name is Joe McCormick. And that is an odd scenario that most mm-hmm. doctors probably would never find themselves in. But it is actually not not just a, a fictional contrivance. There have been scenarios where a doctor has had someone show up at their office claiming not that they're dying, but that they are dead. Yes. Yeah. And it would I mean, it would be comedic if the examples of it, the actual case studies weren't so depressing and heartbreaking and, and, the, and the, the condition itself were not so real. Yeah. Um, so this is going to be the subject of today's episode. What it lo- what it's like to experience being dead while still being alive. Yes, it is uh, sometimes referred to as uh, Cotard's syndrome. Also Cotard's delusion. Yeah. And I think delusion is more accurate based on uh, the commentaries we've been reading the idea that that this is not a a specific affliction so much as kind of a, an array of symptoms that emerges from a few different uh, conditions that can occur neurologically so let's go back into history where do we first see this emerging the, the concept of uh, someone who presents to a doctor claiming to be dead yet from the outside they're obviously alive hmm well it's an interesting question, and, and some of the individuals who have tackled it have certainly pointed to examples in myth and legend and saying, well, this could possibly explain these scenarios. Um, however, it seems to be that the, the earliest case of Cotard's delusion, even though it was not known as Cotard's delusion yet, possibly goes back to 1788. Um, and this is when uh, Genevan naturalist and uh, philosophical writer Charles Bonnet encountered what might be the early example, earliest example of the condition. Uh, and this was a, a 70-year-old, otherwise healthy woman who, upon experiencing something like a stroke, and this was after a draught of air hit hit her in the neck, according to the um, the, the, the the studies. I read the same thing there. She yeah. reported a draught of air hit her in the neck, okay. and then she felt like a paralysis across half her body. Yeah, 
and uh, and then she was silent as a corpse for four days. And then when she opened her mouth, finally, she demanded burial. That is a strange thing to demand. Yeah. Yeah. Like I say, it would be comedic if it weren't so serious. Um, but yeah, so she seemed to be under the real persistent idea that she was no longer alive, even while she was alive to tell people this. Yeah. Yeah. She uh, so she she apparently you know, is just very insistent of it, like it was very much like a delusion, like something, again, that the individual that's believing it. Is it completely invested in it, completely convinced of its of this reality, no matter how ridiculous it might seem to anyone on the outside? It's like she became agitated and she was scolding her, her friends for for not for not doing as she she asked. She said, "I I am not alive anymore. I need to be buried." Um, you know, they they ended up calling a doctor. Eventually, everybody thought it was necessary to to dress her like a corpse and lay her lay her out to calm her down. And, well, uh, they actually had a sort of funeral for her. Yeah, right? like they they essentially had to indulge in her uh, delusion a bit just to to calm her down, and and she eventually uh, fell asleep and was undressed and put to bed. But but yeah, how do you even treat something like this? Certainly in in 1788. Well, uh, uh, Bonnet arrived on the scene and he uh, treated her with quote a powder of precious stones mixed with opium. And I guess it worked uh, because he reported that she emerged from her death delusion. Uh, but while she uh, she gave up the notion that she was dead, she then became became convinced that she was in Norway uh, with her daughter while she was actually in Copenhagen the whole time and insisted that she needed to return to Copenhagen from Norway. Um, and during this time, she was otherwise normal, but she could not sleep um, without the opium. So sadly, she ended up suffering the same condition every three months thereafter. So you mean uh, a reprisal of the idea that she had already died? Right. The idea that she she had died would return. She'd have to be talked uh, out of it. And then she would register surprise when she finally learned that she was, in fact, alive. Now, I, I wonder what it's like. Um, like, w- what is the behavior of a person who truly believes themselves to be dead? Like, w- what does that entail for how they act? Well, it, it seems to vary from case to case uh, as we look at it. I mean, a lot of it seems to boil down to just a, an, an essential breakdown in conception of self and identity mm-hmm. instead of like the like we all walk around our, through our lives with a de facto statement. I am alive. And, you know, maybe being alive is fantastic. Maybe it's not. But we at least begin the sentence with I am alive. Yeah. It's but, sort of an axiom. Yeah. Like you, you don't need to debate this point. But for them, the axiom is, axiom is vacant. It, it's it's absent. And in its place, I am dead. I'm clearly not alive. I must be dead. And then therefore X. Sometimes that X is clearly I must be buried or my body must be destroyed or in some cases, it's uh, I'm not alive and yet I exist. Perhaps I have entered some deathless state. Yeah, perhaps some afterlife. Yeah, some, some afterlife, uh, et cetera. So it it kind of varies depending on what's going. It, the underlying conditions that are causing these symptoms come into play, as well as uh, presumably the the exact um, you know worldview of the individual afflicted. Yeah, another thing that I I've read about in many of the cases here is a sort of denial of life sustaining activities. Like yeah. the person seems to, in many cases, lose interest in eating and yes. g- going about their business as one normally would and mm-hmm. in doing any of the things that would constitute a life going on. Yeah, sleeping, etc. Um, authors uh, Hans Forstel and Barbara Beetz 
uh, wrote about uh, the um, the Binet case uh, for the British Journal of Psychiatry in 1992, and they uh, theorized that the idea of imminent death played a role in this too. Uh, the the idea of imminent death during the old woman's stroke overpowered her thoughts at least until she regained full consciousness. Hmm. Um, so again, so like while she was having a stroke, she had the idea that she was dying. And then in some sort of liminal state following the stroke, she had not yet overcome the the conclusion of that assumption. Yeah. I mean, because like if the last if the last experience you have with like a full consciousness and a full conception of self is that of, oh, crap, I'm about to die. Oh, crap. Something horrible is happening to my body. Mm-hmm. And then when the, then, then the next phase you exist in is this altered phase in which uh, some of your normal neural processes are adjusted, that may be the uh, explanation you fall back on. That at least is one uh, one theory. Here's a, a quote from what they had to say. The most exceptional and strange ideas can gain such acceptance if the mind is suddenly thrown from its ordinary reasoning and forced into a new main idea. A sudden physical disorder in the brain or a sudden violent excitement can cause such a change that we are, we, that we are pushed beyond insight into its unreasonable nature because we assume to notice a correct functioning of our imagination, even in delusion. Hmm. Which I, I love that because it, I think one of the things that's fascinating about delusions such as this with other neurological conditions is that it not, it not only illustrates what is possible in terms of human perception of reality, yeah. but also how ultimately ephemeral the uh, quote unquote normal perception of reality actually is. Well, yeah. And it also, I think, underlies our, our inherent predisposition for a completely irrational thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, like, obviously, I don't mean this as an indictment of uh, people suffering from Qatar's delusion. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not trying to uh, impugn their rationality. Mm-hmm. But uh, this seems to be a thing that's it's latent in the human brain, uh, the ability to hold thoughts that are impossible. Right. Because in a strange way, this this is perhaps the most delusional possible thought, mm-hmm. uh, like from a Cartesian point of view. And what what I mean by that is, you know, so Rene Descartes was trying to come up with an axiom that he could start his deductive philosophy with, right? Um, and so he could start with like, well, I observe that I'm in a room, but then you can't actually start with observations, according to him, because there's no way you can be certain you're not hallucinating every aspect of your surroundings. But Descartes eventually said, you know what, I can start with cogito ergo sum, I think therefore I exist, uh, because, I mean, it, it's pretty much that is true by definition. It, it cannot be false. So this syndrome is kind of some form of the denial of the Cartesian axiom. It's denying the thing that could not by definition be false. I think, but I do not exist. Yeah, the, in this, it would be the ultimate de- denial, the ultimate nihilism, right? Yeah. And indeed, this is, uh, this is some of the thinking that, uh, the, the namesake, uh, French neurologist Jules uh, Cotard had uh, as well. Mm-hmm. So, again, this is, this is where we get the name, obviously. Uh, the year was 1880. So it's and, about a hundred years after, uh, uh, the original case. Yeah, yeah. And it wasn't, yeah, until later that people pieced that together. Um, he received a most curious patient. Okay. 
a 43-year-old woman who believed she had no brain, nerves, chest, or entrails. She believed she was merely skin and bones and that, quote, neither God uh, nor the devil existed and that she no longer required food as she was, quote, eternal and would live forever. So she requested to be burned alive and attempted suicide several times uh, thereafter and then eventually died of starvation. So this is a pretty... Pretty severe and grim uh, case. Well, so what did Qatar make of this? Well, he uh, initially saw it as an extreme form of uh, hypochondriasis, you know, hypochondriacs. Yeah. Uh, and, and he uh, he thought that this is a this would occur during a severe psychotic depression. And in many cases, this delusion has been linked strongly to depression. Not right. not in every case, because there are a lot of different scenarios that seem to produce similar effects and delusions. But uh, we do see that as a recurring factor, along with like near death or some traumatic uh, yeah. experience. Uh, but it has been often linked to severe types of depression. Mm hmm. And he, he indeed is uh, one that uh, mentioned that tales of the wandering Jew might be related uh, bits of myth uh, that extend from such bouts. So, oh, so he's thinking that uh, cultural ideas like not not just the hardware of the brain malfunctioning, but that software on, running on the brain, you know, received ideas are informing this syndrome. Or, sorry, shouldn't say syndrome, the delusion. Well, or at least that, like, th- these ideas of, say, that there being an immortal, depressed wanderer out there in the world might right. have some ties to this condition, that this might be the nugget of truth uh, behind such a concept. Right. If you're not familiar, the concept of the wandering Jew is the idea that, uh, uh, of course, uh, in in the New Testament, uh, Christ predicts that he will return to Earth before everyone standing before him has passed away. Obviously, a lot of time has passed, and so one uh, solution to this textual problem is that people assumed that at least one person standing there listening to Jesus was actually essentially immortal and had continued to wander the earth since then. Yeah, essentially cursed because in, in some tellings, uh, the wandering Jew laughed at Christ on the, the cross. Oh, I don't think I'd heard that. That's, that's the version I, I ran across recently. So it's kind of like Highlander, except uh, more anti-Semitic. Hmm. So in Qatar's uh, later writings uh, on the condition, he uh, he described it as a nihilistic delusion, a negation of everything, God, food, life itself, quote, a marked tendency to deny everything. Well, then in this case, it would seem that the the way that we originally characterized it as the, the belief that one is dead is actually not the not the overarching nature of this, but it's sort of like one expression of it. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, as Qatard conceived it, it's just a denial of everything, and the denial of one's own continuing life is one facet of that. Right, yeah. If, if this absolute denial enters your consciousness, then even if it's an altered consciousness, then how do you make sense of it? Um, so I assume he didn't name this this uh, delusion after himself. No, no, that wasn't until uh, 1893. Uh, uh, Emil Regis uh, coined that. uh, the term Cotard syndrome, and it was made famous by uh, Jules uh, Siglis, who himself thought that it was all a severe, anxious melancholia rather than a distinct clinical condition. Now, of course, if it were just two cases, that wouldn't be much to go on. But of course, there have been other cases of Cotard's delusion, uh, which we'll get to right after this break. All right, we're back. 
All right. So uh, there have been more than just these two historical cases we talked about, but it also is not an extremely common condition, right? Yeah, it's exceedingly rare um, and perhaps even more so in the modern age since uh, swift treatment of the underlying uh, psychotic disorder uh, typically occurs. And most studies related to Qatar's delusion are, of course, about a single patient. This right. is not the kind of thing where a doctor is going to encounter multiple Qatar's delusion uh, patients, say, within you know yeah. within the course of an entire lifetime. Right. Like, here, here's this one clinical encounter, not like, I recruited a group of 100 people suffering from Qatar's delusion. Right. Yeah. It's the... This is, you know, one of those conditions that's super rare, probably, but it gets more attention because it is so alarming. Yeah. Um, in fact, uh, some of you, I know we have some Hannibal uh, fans out there. There was actually an episode of Hannibal where we had the the sort of killer character of the week with somebody with Cotard syndrome. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, but I don't have a clear enough memory of the episode to uh, to do any kind of critiquing of it, of how they presented it. Well, so now that we've seen more cases showing up throughout history, what are the most common uh, symptoms? Like, how does this delusion present itself most frequently? Claims of being dead, obviously, of organs missing or having rotten or melted away, claims of a missing brain. Oh, yeah. I saw that one Mm -hmm. with the guy who said, I don't have a brain. Yeah. I don't know how to explain this, but I just don't have one. Yeah. Claims, of course, of being... I didn't see any encounter where someone actually said, hey, I'm a zombie or I am a, a lich or something. Mm-hmm. But that but is they basically explain undeadness. Yeah. They basically are like, I'm not alive. I'm dead. But I'm also in some sort of protected state as if in some cases it's there are a few cases we'll look at where that where the individual is saying, like, God won't let me die. But then other times they're just they're just totally negating God or the devil as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's this sense of what. You know what? What a, a Dungeons and Dragons um, a fan might term lichdom. The idea that you're not dead, you're not alive, but somehow death has given you a either a a cursed or uh, elevated status. Well, let's look at some more modern examples of uh, what this actually looks like in in people who present with it. Okay. Well, uh, one interesting case, and we're not going to touch on all of them. Uh, because even though it is rare, there have been multiple cases. Some of them just aren't particularly noteworthy or uh, or provide much uh, illumination uh, for our purposes here. But in 2004, there was a case of an individual uh, by the name of Graham Harrison, and he attempted suicide by empty, uh, entering a bathtub uh, with an electrical appliance. And the next thing uh, he knew is he awoke in the hospital, and he thought he was dead. So in this, we see we definitely see elements of the... The traumatic, like, occurrence, the near-death event. Right. And then waking up with this condition. And he was indeed diagnosed with Cotard's delusion. Uh, but most interestingly, given the, the time in which this took place in the hospital environment, it allowed doctors an unprecedented uh, a PET scan peek into the brain of the deathly deluded here. Oh, so they could get some imaging results, see how the brain of a person experiencing this delusion looks compared to someone who's not. Yeah, at least in this particular patient. Yeah, and they found that his brainwave patterns were were vegetative despite his being awake. So he had very low metabolic activity across large areas of the frontal and parietal brain regions. Some of his this expanse re- related to the default mode network, which we've covered before. This yeah. is the you know the, the constant chatter in your your, your head that's uh, you know 
questions about the can, can, and worries about the past and, and future, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also the regions afflicted here uh, were involved in formulating theory of mind. Now, one of the researchers who worked on this case, who was interviewed in an article in New Scientist about it, uh, Stephen Lorries of the University of Liège in Belgium, uh, said that the, the PET scan results were essentially what you'd expect to see in someone who is asleep or under general anesthesia. Like, you know, so you mentioned the low metabolism. Uh-huh. It was as if the brain had sort of been shut down. And uh, however, the researchers also cautioned that the scan could be affected by the antidepressants he was taking. So, you know, we, we shouldn't draw too many conclusions from one case. Right. But apparently something had happened to his sense of self. Yes, indeed. That's what's really interesting here. And that's that's what we're going to see reflected in some of the other cases we're going to look at. This idea that that the brain's ability to conceive self. Uh, and, and, to, and, and indeed to conceive, uh, the identity of others is what is afflicted here. Um, now luckily in the case of, uh, of Harrison here, uh, thanks to psychotherapy and drug treatment, he was, uh, eventually able to, to overcome these symptoms and return to something of a normal life. And there's actually an interview with him in New Scientist from uh, a few years back. Uh, you can find it, Mindscape's first interview with a dead man. Yeah. And I was just going to say that it's an interesting read worth checking out. Now, in some of these papers, I found reference to an individual who wanted to erase their body with acid. Oh, yeah. Uh, but I wasn't able to track down a particular study on that one. Uh, but there were some other interesting cases that uh, came up, one of which was a 2005 Iranian case uh, covered in the uh, article. This is a telling uh, title covered in the study. Coexistence of lycanthropy and Cotard syndrome in a single case. Wait, lycanthropy? That's werewolf syndrome, isn't it? Indeed. Yeah. Something you don't really expect to pop up in a uh, in a serious uh, psychological paper. Now, in the clinical definition, I think lycanthropy is what the the belief that one has been transformed into an animal or behaviors indicating such a belief. Right. Yeah. So we're not talking about actual transformation into a wolf or a dog or what have you. Uh, This individual is a 32-year-old man who arrived at the hospital and complained, A, that he was dead, and B, that he had turned into a dog. Both. Yeah. And that the same was true of his wife and daughters. Well, that his, I think he claimed that his wife had been turned into a dog and that his daughters yes. had been turned into sheep. That's right. So his delusion of uh, zoological transformation extended to his family, but not necessarily the same animal. Yeah. Now, he claimed that his relatives had tried to poison him as well. Uh, yeah, I think by uh, putting cyanide in his tea. Well, that's one tactic uh, to employ. Uh, and he also claimed that God protected him, even in this undead form, which, uh, which is interesting. It ties back into this, this theme we see again and again, that they're, they're dead, but somehow undying. So what did the study conclude about this patient? Well, uh, here's the, here's the quote. A patient meeting a DSM-4 criteria for bipolar mood disorder mixed type with psychotic feature had the delusion of being transformed into a dog. He was also deluded that he was dead. He was restless and had a serious sense of guilt about a previous sexual contact with a sheep. Coexistence of lycanthropy and Cotard syndrome has not been reported before. In this patient, uh, zoophilic orientation associated with a sense of guilt were concluded to be important factors causing his delusions. So he had also like uh, some guilt going on about uh, a zoophilic encounter, essentially. Yes, that's that's what the paper is getting at. So a, a rather disturbing case all around. I think uh, everyone will agree. 
But it's interesting because we're seeing this delusion here in this case perhaps have causes that are less uh, tied to physical trauma and more to just like severe guilt, severe psych- psychological trauma over mm-hmm. uh, over a past incident. Uh, Matt uh, Soniak has a great blog post about this at uh, Matt uh, Soniak, that, Soniak, that's M-A-T-T-S-O-N-I-A-K.com. Uh, and he adds that, uh, quote, in Persian folklore, the dog is both a symbol of loyalty and a symbol of impureness. The man's sexual history with sheep coupled with his desire to protect his sheep daughters and many dogs' roles as herders and protectors of flocks adds another layer of paradox. So this is another thing perhaps comparable to w- whether this assumption was correct or not. Uh, the, the original assumption of Qatar that like the wandering Jew mythology could figure into the mm-hmm. presentation of this delusion. Here it's saying like, Cultural ideas or beliefs or yeah. sort of received associations can also play a role in how this delusion is manifest. Because you have a condition that is causing these symptoms, and then the mind has to somehow make sense of the sim- symptoms that it's working with. And for that, you often need to be able to, you have to call on cultural motifs or some sort of bit of mythology or some some at least vague concept of what it means to not be yourself, what it means to not be alive. Yeah. So a lot of the the cases we've talked about so far are cases where the information we have comes from, uh, well, in, in, in one case at least an interview, but uh, mostly from sort of clinical observations. Right. So uh, researchers are looking at these patients and at the symptoms they're presenting and trying to describe them for, for the scientific literature. But I, I think it's also important to try to get a picture from people's own first-person perspective. Oh, yeah. So, first of all, there's an article in the Washington Post in November 2015 about Cotard syndrome, and uh, one of the people it tells the story of in the article is uh, is this this woman, Esme Weijun Wang. And, uh, and in 2013, she came to the conclusion that she was dead. According to the article, Wang lost consciousness during a long flight from London to San Francisco, and her doctors never found any explanation for the incident, but afterward, she began to experience increasingly strange symptoms of, uh, of distress and disorientation, psychosis, losing her sense of reality. And about a month later, she woke up one morning with a new consciousness of her situation. And now I'm going to quote from the article, uh, a quote she gives to them, quote, I was convinced that I had died on that flight, that I was in the afterlife and hadn't realized it until that moment, said Wang, now 32, who was convinced her husband and their dog Daphne were dead as well. And then her quote continues, that was the beginning of when I was convinced that I was dead. But I wasn't upset about it because I thought I could do things in my life over and do them better. Hmm. Uh, but her condition did uh, worsen from there. So Wang wrote an essay called Perdition Days that she posted online about her experience. And uh, I read this and I really recommend reading it because it, it's a really interesting um, and I would say very well written description of, of what it's like first person to have this kind of experience. So in the essay, she describes how when she first discovered she was dead and living in some sort of afterlife, she felt happy. Uh, but this soon decayed into a state of misery where she began to believe that she was living in a form of perdition, which is a state of punishment or hell. 
And she writes, quote, During the perdition days, which had no rhythm to them, I could not summon the motivation to do anything. I would not eat. I often would not move. I would not attempt to read or answer an email or have a conversation because there is no point in doing anything when in perdition. Instead, there is only horror and a physical agitation that refuses to manifest physically for a lack of motivation. But it does line up with uh, these uh, other examples we've looked at, the sense that it's it's not merely waking up and saying, oh, I think I'm dead. Mm-hmm. It's this you, you feel at odds with everything in your world. Yeah. Like, but again, kind of getting into that uh, negation of everything, that ultimate nihilism, though, that almost puts to defined uh, uh, a definition on it. You know, like it mm-hmm. seems like it's it's basically again, it comes down to you're left with this just inhuman feeling and you have to make something human out of it or attempt to with with what you had to work with. Yeah. So it's obvious that these these cases and by the way, I do recommend that the listeners read this essay, Perdition Days, because I think it's really good. Cool. We'll include a link to that as well as the uh, the other interview on the landing page for this uh, this episode at stuff to blow your mind But also, I think we should be asking the question of, well, wait a minute, if if what you're just saying is true, Robert, you know, there's this problem with um this collection of symptoms being c- kind of only very vague and loosely associated while certainly very real mm-hmm. um are are we talking about one coherent thing when we talk about Cotard's delusion or instead are we sort of are are we fabricating the connective tissue that's holding all these cases together yeah, so this is this is something that really throughout the history of Cotard's delusion or Cotard's syndrome, you see time and time again. Is it a true syndrome? Yeah. Or is it just a delusional state that emerges from various other conditions? No, we're certainly not questioning the reality of the experiences of the individual mm-hmm. people having this uh, these experiences. But what are we saying is essentially, is it one thing right. or are these different things that we're trying to group together under the same heading? Right. So it's kind of like in a broad sense, you have hallucinations, mm-hmm. but there are various forms of hallucinations and there are uh, myriad reasons for why one would experience a hallucination. So is this a case where Cotard's delusion is simply something that emerges due to various causes. Well, one thing... And I think there's a strong case to be made for that. Okay, yeah. Well, one thing we could do to sort of of help uh, unify our understanding of it is to look at the cause and effect situation. Has there been a cause isolated by the researchers who work on this? Uh, Is there something they can point to to say, yeah, we think when we see Cotard, this is the most likely cause? Well, uh, based on the resources I was looking at, there, a, a number of researchers seem to, to think that it boils down to, to misfirings in the fusiform face areas of the brain. Now, what is that? So this, these are areas involved in facial recognition, huh. uh, as well as, and also misfirings in the amygdala, which matches uh, emotional response to all those faces. So again, we're getting back to that idea of the brain's ability to deal with self, to deal with identities and to then uh, attribute appropriate emotional responses to those identifications. Um, so how, how would this be meant? So if, you, if you're having trouble recognizing faces and feeling the correct emotional reactions to them, um, how would this manifest as a belief that one was dead or had lost your existence or identity? Well, it, you can think like one way to think of it is to think of use of a mirror. And again, this is not saying that that Cotard's delusion depends on an individual looking in a mirror. Yeah. But 
if you have if you're having a, if you're experiencing a lack of emotion in viewing faces uh, and a resulting detachment, and then you view, view your own face in a mirror, well, then that could lead to this startling detachment between your sense of self and the projected self in the mirror. So, in short, you cease to see yourself as you. You end up you do not exist. It's kind of like the Medusa staring into the uh, being uh, confronted with the mirror. Yeah. Do you just feel that you have turned to stone? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So one thing I came across when uh, reading about this is that there seem to be a wide range of different treatment options that have been tried. Uh, The Washington Post article I mentioned earlier spoke with a psychiatrist named uh, Jesus Ramirez Bermudez at the uh, National Institute of Neurology and Neurosurgery in Mexico. And he says he's treated at least 14 patients with uh, with uh, Cotard's delusion using a combination of medication and psychotherapy. Yeah, and that that seems to be um, the situation you run across that um, it, it, it's it, coming back around to the to the uh, the idea that Cotard syndrome again has not it's it's a it's a battery of symptoms that emerge from a uh, from different causes. And so, you know, you can't really treat the symptoms, you can try and control the symptoms, mm-hmm. but uh, it's going to vary, de- you know, depending on what uh, is actually causing them and and whether that's being addressed or not. So you see antidepressants, antipsychotics, and even uh electroconvulsive therapy mm-hmm. uh, re- uh resulting in some uh, benefits from time to time. Now, when we mentioned disorders of the recognition of faith this does seem related to another uh, type of delusion I've read about before, the, the Capgras delusion. Yeah, yeah. And this is one that I've um, at least written about in the past. I can't remember if I've done any podcast uh, content on it. I think maybe Josh and Chuck have. Oh, yeah. I but think it's, so. uh, it's a delusional identification syndrome, which generally involves right brain anomalies linked to a number of illnesses and neurological disorders, ranging from uh, schizoaffective disorder and Alzheimer's disease to severe head injuries, pituitary tumors and migraines. Even alcoholism can play a role, but it basically entails the experience of doppelgangers mm-hmm. thinking that. Basically, you, you you encounter individuals in your life. Maybe they're even family members, but suddenly you see them. But there's this mix up in identity. So yeah. you see them, but you think they are not themselves. You think that, and then if you try and make sense of that, well, they have been replaced. These are replicas. yeah, yeah. That's how I've heard it explained: mm-hmm. is that uh, you you recognize the person, but you don't think they're really them. Yeah, you know, my family has been replaced by imposters. Yeah, so there there definitely seems to be some strong connective tissue between these two scenarios. Again, getting back to that idea that it's a disruption of the ability to process self and identity. Now, in uh, 1995, uh, researchers uh, G.E. Berrios and uh, R. Luke presented three different possible categorizations for Cotard's delusion, uh, and this was following their analysis of 200 publications uh, uh, you know, concerning Cotard's uh, mm-hmm. syndrome or delusion. So they, they said, one, there's psychotic depression, and this includes patients where uh, – where where there's this overhanging uh, sense of melancholy and uh, in this uh, in these nihilistic delusions emerge and then there's Cotard type 1 they said which includes patients uh, that represent a clear case of Cotard syndrome but more specifically the delusion is is prominent in comparison to the depressive picture uh, that we already mentioned and then there's a uh, Cotard type 2 a mixed group and this is where they pa- patients uh, uh, demonstrate anxiety, depression, and even auditory illusions as well. Hmm. So even so, basically the take home here is that if you, if you start breaking it down, 
it's it's not even that, that Cotard's uh, delusion or Cotard's syndrome is like one set of thing. You know, it, it may be three different things. It's uh, it's kind of depending on it's a battery of symptoms, and that exact yeah. battery of symptoms will differ from one patient to another. Seems like it might be kind of a what a what a a working theory, like a a working uh, categorization technique. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, because overall, the delusion has been reported uh, as a symptom or, or, again, a battery of symptoms in a number of different underlying conditions, including migraine, uh, neoplasms of the parietal cortex, uh, 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 cerebrovascular disease and epilepsy, trauma, acute toxic phase of typhoid fever, multiple sclerosis. Wow. Yeah, again, with, with such a range of causes and such a range of different uh, specific presentations, it, it makes me wonder yet again, is this really one thing? Yeah, and I, I think I think the the case is very strong that it is not that it yeah. is that this is this is something that emerges from various conditions. One thing this makes me think about, and I've mentioned it a couple of times so far, is the role of beliefs in the formation mm-hmm. of delusions. We mentioned it with the wandering Jew and with the uh, the idea of permit perdition. Um, so there's sort of like the hardware versus software formulations of brain function, right? Uh, so if uh, you imagine hardware is the physical and chemical activity of the brain mm-hmm. and the software are your thoughts and beliefs. Um, when I read literature about um, um, mental conditions uh, or any, any uh, disorder of the brain, it often seems theorized in terms of hardware malfunction. Right. And there is some kind of malfunctioning of the hardware of the brain that is producing negative effects in the software. Right. Uh, but I, I keep thinking about the way the software feeds back into how the hardware works. Like, again, um, the, the things we mentioned so far, one thing I thought was interesting in Wang's essay, she mentions that she came to believe that she was living in perdition, even though she had never been a Christian. Hmm. But that was still apparently a I mean, that was still obviously uh, a script that was available to her. Yeah. It's kind of like individuals who who uh, experience some sort of uh, supernatural occurrence. Yeah. Um, paranormal event. And then they're, they have to make sense of it. So they have a few different scripts they can go to if if they if they want. Yeah. A- another experience that I think is uh, in- interesting here in terms of how this reads on beliefs is the reports of people sort of recognizing the illogical nature of what they're being told and yet being unable to stop believing it. Yeah. Like uh, when people say I'm dead and someone says to them, but you're walking around and you're talking dead. People can't do that. Uh, it seems that some of these people who who experience Cotard's delusion, they recognize that they're like, oh, yeah, you know, I that's true that dead people can't walk around and stuff. But yet it is a fact that I'm dead like that is a primary, uh, you know, prima facie conclusion. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not just a situation where you can talk somebody out of it. Yeah. Um, and, and therefore it. Yeah, it, it's, it is interesting to think of it in terms of the hardware software. Because there are these these clear cases where it's like, all right, clearly there's there's damage to the brain, some sort of trauma occurred, stroke like scenario, et cetera, and then that messed up the, the the software. But in other cases, it seems like it might be pure software, such as the case of the um, the the Iranian um, um, uh, man who thought he was oh, a wolf. You know? Yeah, I, don't I mean, know. not to say there's not some uh, potential physical trauma going on there as well that was either. Uh, you know, underreported or not reported, but still. You know, one of the scariest and most troubling things about this delusion is that, uh, in some forms of it, 
it seems like medical science is having difficulty helping people. In other cases, people do seem to have uh, been able to to get treatment that achieved a, a positive uh, conclusion. Uh, in Wang's essay, again, she she talks about meeting with her doctors and feeling despair at the idea that they really didn't have any way that they could cure this. Mm-hmm. They, they were just talking about like, well, uh, how much of her life would she have to live uh, feeling the, these heightened states of psychosis as opposed to relatively milder periods. And, uh, that's just such a, a horrible thing to have to be told. I mean, and not like it's the doctor's fault. Right. Um, but I, I would hope that this is something that we can make progress on. You know, when people talk about, about curing diseases, about medical prog- progress in curing diseases, they're almost always talking about somatic illnesses, mm-hmm. uh, people having, you know, cancer or, uh, or other problems. And of course, those are worth addressing too. But I, but I think it's really important to help keep up, uh, hope for the, for the alleviation and curing of mental illnesses. I agree. I agree. So, hey, uh, that's it for this episode. But uh, we know that this probably stirred a number of uh, thoughts from our listeners. And, hey, it's not it's not impossible that somebody out there listening to this has second or even firsthand experience with uh, with the uh, Qatar's delusion. So if you if you do, if you have. Get in touch with us. We would love to hear from you. Uh, if you want to learn more about Stuff to Blow Your Mind, if you want to check out past episodes of the podcast, check out some videos, blog posts, etc., head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. You'll also find find links out to our social media accounts there, such as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram. If there is if there is a particular social media thing that you use, uh, seek us out there. Follow us. And another great way to support the show is, uh, hey, wherever you listen to us, if there's an ability to to rank us, to uh, to give us a star rating, leave some feedback, leave us some positive feedback, leave us uh, an absurdly high uh, star rating. That helps <laughs> yeah. out the algorithms and uh, helps out the show. Yeah, be sure to lie about how great we are. I mean, you know, be be truthful, but then just go above and beyond because you got to make up to the other people. For the, you have to make up for the other people who are um, who who are not who are lying. So, right, you know. a lot of naysayers out there. Yeah, you just got to get to balance it, and the only way to balance it is to give us five stars. That's just that's just fact. Of course, we we only want the most honest feedback. <laughs> anyway, of course, if you want to get in touch with us, as always, to let us know topics you might let us uh, might want us to cover in the future, or uh, feedback on this episode or any other, or uh, or responses to any of the problems. We asked you in this episode. You can always email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Thank you.